Hey everyone, welcome to our second Patreon episode. We're so excited to bring this to you. We know it's a few days late, but with Thanksgiving, things always get kind of crazy. We don't have to do the normal spiel with you guys because you already support us so much and we can never thank you enough. I agree. Um, thanks, John. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, guys. And uh, happy belated Thanksgiving for, uh, for those of you, you know. Like it's a birthday? I don't know. Yeah, this I can is do a... what I want. Well, you know, yeah. <laughs> okay. Happy belated Thanksgiving. What the hell? Okay, so we wanted to bring you our second Patreon episode. We want to make them more consistent from now on. So we're thinking about probably once a month, we're just having an episode like this for all donating members to show you how much we appreciate you. And today we are going to continue on our theme from last week with the Ed Gingrich episode. We want to discuss another subculture with you today. However, here we have a subculture that exists in complete juxtaposition to the Amish society that exists throughout the United States. We have the club kid scene of the 1990s in New York City. Oh yeah. Now this is a subculture of decadence, outrageousness, strobing lights, and lots and lots and lots of drugs. This subculture shocked the country with their crazy antics, gender fluidity, and open drug usage. But this was a movement that first starts off as a circle of acceptance to all those who have been shut out by the conservativeness of the 1980s. It's going to take a dark turn into exclusiveness and an obsession with the macabre after the taste for drugs becomes insatiable. It is clear that subculture groups focused on their own individual expression of artistic being and self-gratification are too absorbed with themselves to see what is happening around them. But if they could have, they would have seen the dark turn they were taking was a path that had been walked before, and just maybe could have been stopped. In the 1960s, the counterculture movement of free love, peace, and some of the best music we'll ever have, centered around drugs as well. This need and love for drugs, along with the establishment of communes around the country, where those who disagreed with American politics or society in general could live on their own with a group of like-minded people who wanted to live off the land, do drugs, and just be a happy family. One of social acceptance in a time where social acceptance, much like the 80s will, will lie within a conservative majority of the country. But creating a movement whose focal point is getting high and taking acid will only lead down a dark road. And that's what caused the error of free love and flower power to come crashing down. A group that did too many drugs and took it too far. And of course, we're talking about the horrific Tate and LaBianca murders committed by the Manson family, which is going to end the counterculture movement. And of course, this is so fitting because Charlie Manson just recently passed Passed away. away. But today's episode is just like what's going to happen with the counterculture. This free-spirited, self-expression movement of the 1990s club scene is going to end the same way the counterculture movement did, with a brutal murder. Right. So in today's episode, we're going to see history repeat itself. The 1990s New York City club kid scene began as a movement towards acceptance. However, raves that lasted 18 hours or parties featured on a Wednesday night that went on till 5 a.m. were fueled by pure drug-induced energy. I could never go to a party like that. That sounds like my worst nightmare. You know what the problem is? I mean, I sweat a lot. So I just, 
<laughs> I just feel like if I'm like if I went to like one of these clubs or like went to a rave or something. I mean, yeah, if I was dancing all fueled by drugs, too, I mean, I'd be sweating profusely. People would probably think I'd smell. I'd be self-conscious about my smelling. And then the drugs would just fuel my... Your sweatiness. My sweatiness. So I can't do any of that. When you drink, you do sweat profusely. I I can't even do that. It's a problem. Uh, It's terrible. It's okay. We love you no matter what. I don't do drugs. Thanks. Okay. (laughs) No, I just... Well, they didn't have Netflix. So I think if they had Netflix, they would have stayed home a lot more. If they had Netflix and chill, everything would be fine. Yeah. But as evident from the past, a subculture reliant on drugs turns sober very quickly. And just like Charles Manson brought the counterculture to an end, a murder in the club kids scene will make the movement come to an abrupt end. And this is just another classic tale of something good turning into something very, very bad. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. So the emergence of the club kit scene can trace its roots back to the 1980s in New York City. Anyone who was around New York City in the 1980s knows just how horrible it was. New York was not the tourist attraction it is today. Not saying that it should be a tourist attraction today. It's kind of a nightmare. Well, I mean, for people that don't live in the city or around the tri-state I know, area, it seems like it's it is a it is a wonderland of great proportion. The greatest city in the, the world. The greatest city in the world, but it's not. It's it's torture go sitting in traffic in the city so just don't do it I will, I will say this there is one place that's worse than new york city traffic and that's california but number two hands down is new york the yeah. drivers suck the people suck yeah they're not um, nice they're not nice and there's nowhere to park it's a lot dirtier than you think it is yeah pretty much and it's just not good people are just rude yeah people are very rude <laughs> <laughs> but i mean you know what we're being haters a little bit, a little bit. but we just ha- we had to drive into the city for Thanksgiving, so we're just drinking some haterade right now. Yes. So back in the 1980s, you only went there if you had to, and when you did, you took your life in your hands. The west side of Manhattan was disgusting and run down. Those that lived there during the time referred to it as a modern day Sodom and Gomorrah. Now we talked a little bit about the atrociousness of. New York City in the 1970s when we talked in the Charlie Chopoff episode, yes. but it's only going to get worse into the 1980s. So picture exactly what we talked about in the 70s and it being worse in the 80s. Yeah. On top of it, there was a crack epidemic. So it got a little more dangerous. And just a little extra tidbit here. Um, my father drove tr- uh, cement trucks in the city you know, for a lot of construction companies. And during that time, my dad would say that if you were there at night, the first thing, there would be prostitutes at every corner that you could possibly, like every time you just go drive down a corner, prostitutes. Wow. If it wasn't prostitutes. Readily available. It was just people that were, you know, all drugged up, like you said. And um, the worst thing actually was a lot of muggings too. Back in the 80s. Right. A million muggings. If you were to be walking in the streets, you were out of your mind. Yeah, it said that. Per day, there was over 200 crimes reported daily on the New York subway systems. Yeah. A day. A day. I believe it. That's insane. So, most buildings were abandoned and stripped of all their wiring and fixtures, which were sold by the homeless for drug money. 
and as you walk down the street, you were more likely than not to step on empty vials of crack. And there were drive-by shootings, muggings, and stabbings on a daily basis, just like you said. Oh, and also just to clarify, the uh, the cables that Kay is referring to, what they would do is they would strip the wires of the copper because right, copper right. sold for a lot of money, which it still does. So I just figured I'd let you guys know that that's what the wires you're talking about. They use copper for insulation and a lot of wiring. So, so if you're ever homeless looking for drug money, that's you what you should do. You can go into do. a house and just okay. punch holes in the walls and take the copper out of the <laughs> okay, wires, yes. Good. I guess that's why people did the muggings because that seems a lot more simple than doing that. Probably. It's a lot of work. It is. Anywhere below 8th Avenue was a war zone. It would come to be described as unfixable. Times Square and the surrounding areas were full of prostitutes and 25-cent peep shows. Ooh. Yeah, that's pretty cheap. Probably not clean, though. I wouldn't do it. Raunchy clubs, well, good. Raunchy clubs and bars were located where Disney stores are today. Blood soaked the marble sign outside of a movie theater, which had a sign up warning patrons that anyone taking or injecting drugs of any kind would be asked to leave. Movie theaters don't say that today. From this dark time, in downtown Manhattan history, emerged a creative street culture, led by the king of the East Village art scene, Andy Warhol. Warhol, a famous artist since the 1960s, was known for his pop art style of painting. He also allowed his art studio to become a meeting place for the famous and the fabulous. And soon he had a group surrounding him who he called the Warhol Superstars. The surrounding art scene would eventually turn into the club scene by the time the 1980s hit. This 1980s club scene in New York City was known around the country as being the center of acceptance. If you were not fitting in anywhere you lived, whether you were struggling with your sexuality in your small conservative town or you were an artist that didn't want to go to college, you would be accepted with open arms in the city that never sleeps. And this is what brings our two characters to New York. The first is Michael Alec, who arrived in the city in 1984. He was a wide-eyed, preppy boy who didn't do drugs and rarely drank, but knew he belonged in New York. He had recently gotten a scholarship to Fordham University, and he could not be happier. Alec had just arrived from South Bend, Indiana a far cry from the society created in New York City's East Village. Now, for those of you that don't know, South Bend, Indiana is Notre Dame country. And in the 1980s was a place where Michael Alec claims that he was made fun of and never fully accepted and that he was still really trying to come to terms with his sexuality. So one of our Patreon supporters is a big Notre Dame fan. Yes, he is. Hi, Mike. You know what's actually crazy? You know, Mike, maybe you can comment on Instagram or Twitter, but I know that there's like a tradition every year for Notre Dame where I believe they do like a walk. I want to say it's like a hundred mile walk that the that the creator of like the founder of Notre Dame walked, uh-huh. and that's where he decided to build uh, like Notre Dame. Okay. So I don't know. I, I, I don't. I don't think that Michael Alec would have participated in this walk. No, definitely not. But I'm just <laughs> saying. I mean, I'm not that good with college football. I know. I know. I know enough to follow, but. Um, I, f- I thought it was interesting. I kind of found that in uh, a couple of the facts I was reading yesterday. Yeah. yeah so anyway, yeah, if uh, you want to, comment. But this would be like Rudy trying to run around South Bend with like purple hair and red lipstick. So it wouldn't be <laughs> completely, <laughs> yeah, so. completely accepted. <laughs> so Alec said he had a really rough time growing up in South Bend. And it's not that his family 
isn't going to later on be accepting. They completely are of his lifestyle and his sexuality, but he felt the community wasn't accepting. Eventually, Alec, who was studying architecture at Fordham, will transfer to the Fashion Institute of Technology. It was here that he met a classmate of his that was in on the whole Warhol club scene. His classmate was dating an important artist at the time, and he was invited to a club with both of them. Now, this is where the scene gets kind of crazy, guys, so... Just be warned that this scene is a little, I guess, raunchy is the words that I could use. I mean, yeah. There's no really true word to describe. So Alec recalls them getting out of the limo and his friend was being led on a dog leash by his famous boyfriend. And they were greeted by a line of about 300 people waiting for a chance to get into the club. And the bouncer was basically... Well, he described it as the bouncer was hand-picking them like a florist would pick roses for a beautiful bouquet. And Alec said he knew immediately that this was the life that he wanted. Alec dropped out of school and began working as a busboy at a club called Danceteria. Now, if you don't know, Danceteria is a famous nightclub in New York City, especially in the 1980s, because Danceteria is the first place that Madonna actually performs. Oh, so it's the club that launched Madonna's whole career. Career. Now, if you could picture how like Madonna was dressed in the 1980s, it's going to be that on crack, literally. <laughs> <laughs> in the 1990s, it just gets a little it gets more colorful, more crazy, like people are characters, they dress up as animals, they put like tape around their faces. They wear wigs. It's it's insane. We'll post pictures on Instagram and on Twitter so you could see what they looked like. Now, Michael and his boyfriend at the time, DJ Kaoki, were slowly working themselves into the club scene, trying to impress the greats like James St. James and RuPaul. Michael will see a chance to rise within the scene after the death of Andy Warhol in 1987. Most consider this time a drastic decline in club life. It was described as the death of downtown. Now that Warhol was gone, who would be the patron saint of all the freaks? And Alec wanted it to be him. He began hosting themed parties on Wednesday nights with different attractions, and he created his own version of the Warhol superstars, who he called the Club Kids. People would show up, dress up, and long to rub elbows with the now famous Club Kids. Now, they're going to get so big that they appear on talk shows all over the country. Like, 1990 is, like, their first appearance of these club kids on television. Up until, I think, the last club kid appearance on TV is, like, 1994. So if you go on YouTube, you could see, like, Geraldo, like, interviewing them all. And Michael is on both of his shows. And Geraldo's, you know, like, his typical jerk self. He's, like, very condescending to them. And you can tell they're not having it. But it's interesting to see them on the show and answering these questions and it seems like it's the perfect interaction between conservative America like the people in the audience and the club kids and it was definitely it was um definitely planned that way let's put it that way oh yeah it was it was yeah and they he would like ask at the first episode of the Geraldo show, Michael's wearing, like, crazy red lipstick, and his, like, ears are painted orange, and he has, like, blue hair, and Geraldo's asking him about his makeup, and he's just being, he's being a dick. He definitely looked like a Florida Gators logo, with his orange ears and his blue <laughs> No, he didn't. He looked like a scarecrow. He was supposed to be a scarecrow. Sure. Come on, John. 
You're not down with the scene. From an outside perspective, these club kids and all those that surrounded them were fascinating. They wore crazy outlandish costumes, had bizarre makeup and hairstyles, and the main goal was to shock. And this is something that they definitely did. The perspective, however, was also that these club kids had no grasp of reality. They were narcissistic and were only looking for attention with their antics. Who could party for 18 hours, go out on a Monday and a Wednesday night, and this bizarre lifestyle was only lived by few? Because, I mean, think about it. The kids that are like the extreme club kids aren't the ones who are just going to the club every once in a while, like is normal. But these kids are, some of them are trust fund babies or they're getting money from drugs. Like they definitely have bad lifestyles or lifestyles that allow them to live this way. Right. It's not the everyday person that's well, club, a part of this elusive club kid scene. Well, yeah. And I mean, I'm, and I'm sure the club scene in general kind of fuels their habits and their lifestyle. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're getting paid. All these people coming yeah, in. Yeah, they're like club promoters if they show up at a club. Right. If the club kids are at a party, everyone's going to want to be there. So they're getting paid to show up at these events or they're getting their drugs and alcohol for free. Right. Exactly. So. Although the group may have looked this way to some, for the masses that came to New York City for acceptance, they were loved. So they were kind of looked upon as the patron saints of the freaks, just like Alec wanted them to be. One of those boys was Andre Melendez. Melendez, who came to America with his family when he was six years old from Colombia, had grown up in Elizabeth, New Jersey. As a child, he was described as a happy kid. He was smart and social and quickly adapted to American culture. However, when high school hit and he began questioning his sexuality, his demeanor changed. He knew that his old school parents would not take the news that he was gay very well. He longed to be accepted by his family, but knew that was not a reality. Longing for acceptance and to feel free to be himself, Andre moved to New York City after he graduates high school in 1989. Andre wanted to reinvent himself leave the quiet, awkward teenage boy in New Jersey, and create a new life for himself. But Andre, just as Michael Alec had been, was desperate to join this club kid world, which had quickly turned into an exclusive small circle of the bazaar. The first club that Andre goes to is called Limelight. Now, this club is actually a converted church where each room has a different theme or a different scene. Dancers danced in cages suspended from the ceilings as the masses below took ecstasy, cocaine, and eventually special K, which is a tranquilizer type drug. So it's definitely a downer, whereas all the other ones are uppers. This all depends on the night they want to have. So do they want to be up all night or do they just want to kind of like fade away? Right. It's their choice. Nothing like a horse tranquilizer to knock you out. All of the rooms of this club were separated based on like what kind of drugs you were taking or what kind of music scene you were into. And Limelight is going to be the main club that is promoted by Michael Alec. Like that's going to be his club. And he's going to work for the owner of Limelight. The Limelight was known as a place that all the misfit kids could come to dress up in costumes, cover themselves in glitter and create alter egos to escape the repressed and non-acceptance they experienced in their lives. This was also a creative outlet for those living in the city at the time. The most outrageous of these kids and the ones Andre was in awe of were the club kids, led by their flamboyant, outrageous, and in-your-face charismatic messiah, Michael Alec. Now, it's so interesting now that when we look back on it, how incredibly similar 
Michael's life was to Andre's. Oh, definitely. They were both escaping like kind of like a repressed life, not acceptance to go into New York City. But they're so equal. But now because he's in this whole club kid scene, he's he's being exclusive himself. Right. He created a society that he was trying to escape from. That's very true. If you look at it that way, yeah, that is true. Yeah. It's just, you know, a selected group of people. Because what makes you know? Michael better than Andre? Really nothing. Just the fact that he'd gotten there five years before. Right. So Alec wanted to be noticed all of the time. He would throw random events in public places all around New York City. Once they were able to get on a New York City bus and kick the driver out and drove it all around downtown for hours. They had an impromptu fashion show in Times Square where most participants had elaborate face makeup on and were covered in little else. Those who, (laughs) yeah, they were basically naked. Those who participated said that when the police showed up, Alec would love it because it just meant more attention. Now, you would think, okay, they're getting in a lot of trouble for this, but think about the epidemics that were happening. So the police really didn't give a shit about what they were doing. They didn't care about them taking over a bus for hours. Nobody was hurt. They said, we have more important things to be dealing with murders all of these crimes muggings so plus, plus if you look into it a, a little deeper i'm sure the the city's budget for hiring the police force probably wasn't that great no no definitely not and there probably wasn't enough cops to cover the entire area and every little thing that happened for andre it was more than attention though he was the first for the first time he was able to be openly gay and fear no repercussions for this Now that he was becoming comfortable in his sexuality, he longed for that family feeling, to be accepted. He wanted to make connections in the city. However, when he came to the club scene, it was hard to be invited in unless you were accepted by Michael Alec. Andre knew he needed to grab the attention of Alec, so he reinvents himself. He creates an alter ego called Angel. At first, his character wears all white. He spray paints his hair and eyebrows like silver, and he wears crowns that have gems on them and stuff and at the same time he is going to be wearing uh, massive angel wings now these angel wings had like a wingspan of four feet so they were massive and he would wear steel toe black leather boots covered in flames so it was kind (laughs) of like it's an angel but wearing these boots it was crazy people always said we always noticed his boots and then kind of as his persona grew over the years he would switch from wearing all white to wearing kind of like all black so he kind of looked like a devil but then he wore the angel wings so okay I see it was just like a crazy persona that he kept on and changed back and forth yeah it grabbed a lot of attention i'm sure yeah how could you not notice someone with a four foot wingspan so (laughs) eventually people are going to start getting to know him and people grew to love him and michael finally is going to take notice and let andre know that he really approves of his new look his new alter ego so now this is where andre transitions into angel okay so from that period on he's known as angel and now he's accepted the inner circle of the club kids so this is when angel emerges on the club kids scene and they begin to take off so all of those things we talked to you about before like being on talk shows like geraldo this is exactly when it starts to take place it's right around like 1990 1991 and conservative parents in the audience watch on with shock and open mouths praying that their kids never turn into this epitome of decadence and disillusion like we talked about before, the audience was, they were in shock. I mean, how could you not? First of all, the way they dressed, 
you had to be in shock. Uh, One audience member in particular is going to stand up and say, you guys are living this life, but eventually the public is going to have to pay for your lifestyle because you're going to go on government assistance. And it's just so funny because it shows like the whole Reaganomics of the time. (laughs) Yeah, right. And then how they responded was RuPaul, who was on the show, said that basically like people like you wouldn't be accepted in the club and that's just why you're mad. And, <laughs> and that most of them dropped out of society when Reagan became president. That was their response. <laughs> so. Yeah. But they didn't care. And all, really all they cared about was they were on TV. So now they're a national sensation. Right. And kids all around the country now are going to flock to New York City who feel like they want the acceptance of this group. Yeah. It's widespread like coverage. You know, they're getting their name out there big time. Right. That's what it was all about. So Alec, who was on all of these talk shows, is now more famous. And this made his group of the club kids more exclusive because he's gained so much popularity. Many, including those desperate to get into the group, tried endlessly to impress Alec. And this did nothing but build and build his ego. Whether it was how they dressed or how much drugs they did, it was never crazy enough for Michael. And this movement, which had been about acceptance, like we said is now all about exclusiveness. Angel, although he was let into the club kid scene, had a large group of friends and was always just outside of that inner circle. And this is because he wasn't like them. He wasn't a trust fund baby that didn't have to work. He had to work two jobs to maintain this lifestyle. Think about it. He's supporting himself. His parents aren't giving him money. And he definitely didn't have a long string of uh, sugar daddies taking care of him. Oh boy. Yeah, like Michael Alec does. Alec states that he had a long string of older men, some married, that financially supported his lifestyle. So this is on top of club promotions and stuff. And his parents also gave him some money because they supported him and they were happy that he finally felt acceptance in his life. So these men were always a lot older than him. And he admits that this could have to do with uh, some of the daddy issues that he had. His father had left his mother, and he grew up with a stepfather who he never really could relate to. So, in a way, he was always in search of that father figure. And that's who these men became, that were giving him money. Angel has to find a way into this world, and his middle-class upbringing is making that really difficult. He knows that he needs to find a way where he would not need a conventional job because this gets in the way of all the parties and staying up so late. Angel believes if he becomes a drug dealer, that will solidify his spot in the whole club kid group. And if he supplies them with the drugs they need, he then becomes indispensable. I feel like he was really just looking for acceptance from the start of this whole thing. Oh yeah, definitely. He wants to be accepted into this group, and the quickest way into this group is to give them what they love, which is their drugs. Think about it though. Like, (laughs) could you imagine? I don't need a conventional job, I'm just going to be a drug dealer. Like when <laughs> well, so many people make that decision. I know, but I'm just saying. But I'm, but you know what I'm trying to say. Like, oh yeah, you what's know, the I, thought process? Yeah, I could just uh, you know sell drugs and they'll accept me. You know, like I know that seems like a scene I really don't want to be in on. No, if I gotta try so hard, no. Like, so soon Angel becomes one of the top drug dealers in the scene. He's mostly at this point selling pot, cocaine, and ecstasy to producers, celebrities. And of course, Michael Alec. <laughs> Angel, however, was a different kind of drug dealer. He wasn't a user. 
Now, this is something that's really rare. Usually drug dealers do their drugs. Right. Or their addicts themselves. Now, the rest of the story we are going to tell is going to be explained in two different ways. So, up until this point, everything is agreed upon. The club kids scene, Angel coming in on the scene. But this is where it separates into two branches. What Michael says happened and what others say happened. So, Angel and many others that observe the scene state that Michael is getting closer to Angel. And he is allowed to stay in his apartment in exchange for free drugs. So if Angel gives Michael drugs, he could stay at his apartment. After the time, Michael's addiction is going to take over and the high he was getting from cocaine and ecstasy isn't enough anymore. So he's going to begin his path down a dark road. But Angel would do anything Alec asked of him. He was kind of like his puppy dog on a leash. Right. Michael is going to begin using Special K and heroin. And Angel was his main supplier. However, if Michael were to tell the story, he would say that he was never close to Angel and that he was only brought upstairs to their exclusive parties because he was providing their drugs and for a better price than most dealers were. And a lot of times for Michael, it was completely free. Therefore, to have easier access to the drugs, he kept him in his apartment, but he never really liked him. Alec always thought that Angel had come in and taken over his apartment with his drug enterprise. So those are the two different scenes that are created. People said that Michael and Angel were close, but Michael is going to say they were never close. He just wanted drugs from him. Right, which I can understand that. I mean, right. it's easy way to get your drugs. And it's, maybe you're giving the illusion that you're close to this guy because that gets you drugs for Of course, free. yeah. Either way, Alec is going to allow another drug dealer onto the scene. Uh-oh, competition. Yeah, and his name is Robert Riggs, but Riggs goes by the name Freeze. Okay. Okay. So, those on the scene described Freeze as being the opposite of Angel. He was a hardcore druggie, he rarely talked, and was kind of a tough, seedy character. It's the opposite of Angel. So, you have a typical drug dealer in Freeze, and kind of a bizarre drug dealer in Angel. And I will say this, though. Think about think about this, right? You have somebody that doesn't use their product. Right. That does two things for you. One... You always have an abundance of drugs because you're not using. Correct. And second, you don't mind the prices because you have the supply because you're not using it. So now you can beat other competitors' prices, I guess. I mean, I'm not a drug dealer, right. but I would just you're assume. saying this is the way to go. This is the way to Angel, run your Angel's enterprise. Path. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's clear because they were obviously in competition that Angel and Freeze hated each other. Interestingly enough, I don't know if this was on purpose, but Freeze, it might have been done on purpose by journalists to kind of exploit this whole thing that went down, but Freeze is described as um, dressing and looking a lot like the devil. Okay. And therefore, the drug scene in the club turned into a battle between... Good and evil, angel and devil. Heaven and hell. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. So this analogy extends to the new drugs on the scene as well. Whereas Angel's reign of drugs consisted of X, pot, coke, albeit bad and deadly, it was in stark contrast to a world that was created by Freeze, dealing heroin and Special K, the new drugs that Alec was into. Okay, so Alec taking these 
new drugs. His transition into downers and tranquilizers is going to have its effect on the club kids scene and those who followed him. Because they would do anything to impress him, they are going to begin using the same drugs he did. And the clubs that used to be filled with people dancing and being involved in other activities, you know, what what we're talking about, until the sun came up, like they were dancing, they had bright colors, but now the club that used to be filled with high energy from like cocaine and ecstasy is now going to be filled with zombies, all passed out on couches, not speaking to each other as like the bass is going to be booming behind them and lights are flashing. Special K, the drug of choice, was taken so you didn't feel anything. Right. It was the opposite of what they used to be doing. Which changes the whole scene. Right, because it cuts you off completely from the world. And it eliminates every care and every feeling you had. And this is how Michael Alec is going to get his new title, The Zombie King. My God. (laughs) It's crazy, though, right? It is, right? Alec and his followers were becoming more and more addicted. So the fact that Angel didn't do drugs was becoming problematic. This is because when the others took the other drugs, Angel was... He was able to stay up with them, have fun, be friendly. So he was not taking cocaine, not taking ecstasy. But his personality and the fact that he would have a few drinks allowed him to be bubbly and stay up with them. And, you know, it was easy to hang out with people that were taking ecstasy and doing cocaine because those are upper drugs. Right. Right? But there's no way, there's no way to emulate the experience of Special K. Because why would you want to? Right. So the fact that Angel wasn't taking these drugs with them made people not want to be around him. Well, right, because these guys are basically out cold. They and, don't he's like, and he's like, what up the hell's going out, on? Yeah, yeah, by himself. So Michael and the others were beginning to resent the fact that Angel wasn't using drugs. They wanted, they didn't want someone to get rich off of their habits. And they liked when the dealers did their drugs with them because it meant more drugs for them and they didn't feel like they were being taken advantage of. This is when Alec allows Freeze to start staying in the apartment and Angel was ousted. Freeze stayed in the apartment on the condition that he would pay rent in the form of two bags of heroin a day for Alec, one in the morning and one at night. Alec makes it harder for Angel to make money because he now is given territories to freeze and Angel no longer has anyone on the scene to deal to in their inner circle. I mean, he could still deal to outside people, but most of the money was coming from the inner circle. And that's where Angel wanted to be. He definitely does not want to go outside the scene because it's dangerous. There's also a massive crackdown on drug dealers during the time because of new mayor, Rudy Giuliani. Rudy! He was... He's amazing. He's credited for cleaning up New York City. And he really did. So Angel didn't want to be a drug dealer on the street at that time because first, it's dangerous. And second, the crackdown from law enforcement is tremendous at this point. So it was safe to only deal to the club kids. Right. That makes sense. So the groups that once gave Angel the acceptance that he always wanted were now ostracizing him. Those still in the club scene describe a bleak world. They say Alec was only a shadow of his former self, and the scene he ruled changed from bright colors and craziness to blackness. It would seem that the devil won out. During this time, Alec became fascinated with the macabre. 
He was obsessed with slasher films and wanted to reflect that in his club scene. His first scene of parties were called Blood Feast, and this was paying homage to the 1960s slasher film, and this was for his birthday. His party scene now reflected a new intensity towards violence. It was at these parties that new levels of depravity were hit. There was fake blood all over the party floor. Partygoers were wearing nothing but rancid meat. So it's kind of like, this whole scene has always reminded me of Lady Gaga. And that's probably where she gets all of her ideas. Because <laughs> probably. this is probably literally her. Probably opened a book from Alec or something here. It looks like guests were being dismembered on the dance floor. And the more grotesque, the better. So like people were coming up. It looked like they were missing legs, arms, like... That's weird. They tried to make themselves look as disgusting as possible. And Alec was really beginning to push the envelope with this. Angel, still dealing to some of his close friends outside of the inner circle, but still in the club scene, is deeply disturbed by the direction the scene is taking. And he no longer wants any part of this world. And he is ready for new beginnings and decides to begin working towards a career in the music industry. He has even accepted into a label owned by fellow club kid screaming rachel who was apparently really big on the scene she had her own record label and angel wants to be a singer and rachel tells people that he actually really has potential and he has a great singing voice so right around april of 1996 the word on the street was to stay away from michael as he was deep into this world of addiction and his temper was always getting the better of him so we have Angel trying to make a clear break and Michael getting darker and darker. Well, you get to the point where, I mean, he's always trying to push these envelopes in these, you know, pushing the envelope in these clubs. Right. And it's like, when is when is enough enough? Like, when does it get too far, you know? Right. And you can see the difference um, in his behavior and his... Um, demeanor. Demeanor. The way he looks. Based, and the way he looks and his ideas... Based on the difference from the Parties. drugs he was using. Oh yeah, definitely. And that's very, you know, it's eye interesting. Yeah. And it's yeah, it's eye opening. It's very interesting as well. You know, like the the uppity drugs, you know, was very colorful and and elaborate and all these mm-hmm. crazy things. And now these drugs that slow you down, pass you out, make you feel nothing. You it went to more of a dark, you know, slasher esque weird, uh, you know, weird shit. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, it's so a reflection funny how that happens. Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay. This is where things get into, Dicey. Our, into our true crime part <laughs> of the show. All of a sudden, Angel just stops visiting the scene of the club kids. Many wonder if he just left, tired of the new changes, much like many were. But no one ever dared said anything in fear that they would be kicked out by Alec and his new sidekick, Freeze. Now, it's really funny. Um, one of the episodes of the Geraldo show that I saw, there was, like, a beginning scene of, like, showing how, like, crazy the club kids were and, like, showing their scene. And there's one quick flash of it's Michael, Freeze, and Angel all standing, like, talking to each other, like, whispering. And it's just weird to see that flash of the three of them together. Hmm. Yeah. However, a rumor begins to spread. Angel isn't coming around because he's dead, and Alec killed him. Now, do we know where that started from? Or that was just someone that someone made up, maybe? Well, we'll get into like okay. how that rumor started and what how it went down. Gotcha. So the rumor on the street was they had gotten into a fight over owed money, and there was something about a pillow, a hammer, 
Drano, and Dismemberment. Everyone is shocked and no one knows what to believe. Is this a trick? A ploy arranged by Alec? It wouldn't be unlike him to do something crazy and elaborate like this. Maybe he was going to spread rumors that Angel was dead and then throw like a resurrection party where Angel would like descend from the ceiling on strings and say (laughs) like he was he's resurrected. That would have been a good idea. It would have been a good idea. Mm. (laughs) However, soon validity comes to these rumors on April 26, 1996, when Michael Mustow, who's actually a very interesting character. He was big on the club kid scene. He was also on all of the talk shows. He becomes an important journalist. Um, he's a big commentator on social history. And if you've ever watched a show on like MTV or VH1, he's always one of the guys being interviewed. He was writing for the Village Voice at the time. And as a member of the club kid community, and he was very close with Alec, he is going to write in his gossip column, in the Village Voice, a story of murder, but he changes all of the names. So, like, oh, he doesn't clever. say Michael, he doesn't say Freeze, he doesn't say Angel, but he tells the whole story as he heard it, that it went down. And he describes a brutal and heartless crime. And the community fears that these rumors might be true. Angel's older brother, Johnny, however, is going to speak out about this. And he contacts police to let them know that his brother has been missing for three weeks. And he tells them about all the rumors that are going around. And most importantly, he lets them know that the last time he saw his brother alive was when he dropped him off in front of Michael Alec's apartment. Wow. Okay. Johnny claims his brother never came back out. And he paged him, but he never returned his phone call. So eventually he left not knowing what was going on. He thought maybe his brother was staying with Alec. You know, you, you don't know. He because paged him. There, I know, there's <laughs> pagers back then. Because there's something that we haven't addressed here. There's no way that I can be convinced that Michael and Angel did not have a relationship of any type. Like, Are you talking about a sexual relationship? Yeah. I mean, I, I, well, I don't put it past... The whole club kid scene. Well, I'm sure it went down, and I'm not just saying right. that because you know there has to be some type of emotionality in this whole thing. There's no way that there was no was relationship. Just for drugs. Yeah, yeah, between Angel or between Freeze. So like, not only might he have been ousted because of ousted as a drug dealer, but a boyfriend that he didn't want to run anymore. Right? Maybe Angel was controlling. I don't think that Angel was controlling. I think Michael got bored of him. I, I do find this Angel, odd. Angel was submissive to Michael. Yeah, no, no, yeah. So yes. he's not going to be controlling of him. Okay, but yeah. I mean, I, I guess you're right. And that's actually a good point. I didn't even think about that at all. Yeah. But I think that, um, I do think that it's weird how he was ousted because he wasn't supplying them with the drugs that he that Michael wanted. No, he was giving Michael the drugs he wanted. They just didn't like the fact that Angel wasn't doing the drugs with them. Right, but then what I'm saying is why would he... I think because Michael got annoyed by Angel. Because he always said, I never, I only liked him because of the drugs. But if we're getting them from someone else, who we like better, Freeze, that's that's why why, he got out. So that's why you think that there was more involved there? I think so. I I would say the same thing. There had to be some type of romantic relationship. Right. 
but the police aren't going to take any interest in Johnny's claims that his brother had been murdered. Angel was gay, a Colombian immigrant, a drug dealer, and part of the club kid scene. He was not a top priority. On top of that, they had no evidence of a crime or a body. Johnny was on his own searching for his brother, and he hung up flyers all along the East Village saying, Missing Angel, with a picture of his brother with those massive angel wings. And those flyers were placed just below the new flyers of the party that Alec was throwing that week. Wow. Johnny will ask the club kids if they knew where his brother is. And they know. But they will never tell. Alec has confessed to them that he has killed Angel. He confesses that he and Freeze did all of Angel's drugs and spent all of his money. And at one party in particular, he brags about wearing the dead man's shoes. He's kind of like sitting on a couch with his legs crossed and he's bouncing his foot up and down. And he goes, guess whose shoes these are? And everyone knows that they're Angel's boots. With the flames. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. In this new macabre world Alec had established of death, destruction, and drugs, his followers are almost going to admire him for this murder, right? This, this creates, well, it solidifies and amplifies this myth of who Michael is. He's their leader, right? He's the guy that is always going to push the envelope and is always going to do more. Don't you find that so bizarre? It's bizarre. It's, it's sick. It's crazy. I mean, it's so, it's very cult-like. Right, it is. I mean, if I knew someone that killed somebody else. But they have a subculture of their own. So they've created in their minds their own society, which is ruled by Michael and fueled by drugs. So it's it's not, it's outside our conception of reality. Yeah, I don't even think we could even try to understand And Alec was always able to one-up everyone. And this time, he just really had done it, you know? Right, right. So some reflect back on this time and say they didn't truly really ever believe he did it, that Angel was just disappeared or that something bad happened to him, but it didn't have to do with Alec. Because if you think about it, he really was a drug dealer during the, the 90s, so it wasn't a good time to be a drug dealer. Right. But the reality is nobody speaks because... They don't want Michael Alec to get arrested. Hmm. Right? So they, a lot of them, he's saying, I did it. I killed Angel. But nobody wants Michael to get arrested because if Michael gets arrested, what would happen? Their whole scene would fall apart. Their lives as they knew it would be over and they wouldn't have a place to party or a club to go to or a scene to fit in on. So no one wants Michael Alec to go to prison. That's what you're saying. Once again, very cult-like. Right. However, all of these questions will soon be answered. In November of 1996, the body of Andre Melendez will wash up on the shores of Staten Island. Two boys playing catch in a park will find a cardboard box. And they think they're going to find a kind of treasure in it. So they start poking holes in it. And they find the dismembered body of Andre Melendez. Could you imagine being a like, kid... Just being like, oh, yeah, treasure. No. A body. (laughs) And a hand comes out. Oh, my God. The remains are too putrefied to be fingerprinted, so Angel is identified through dental records. After the remains are found, Alec and Freeze are arrested. Now, it's that time before they're arrested that they 
Michael describes in all of his interviews uh, a time of extreme paranoia. Every ambulance, every police siren they thought was for them. But that has to do with the drugs as well, I'm yeah. sure. Oh, yeah. Yes. So Freeze is going to turn on Michael as soon as he hits the chair. <laughs> <laughs> and he falls for that whole, your friend already confessed. So now you tell us what happened. Like, he falls for that very easily. Alec then confesses, too. And the story they tell is going to be stomach-turning, even for the seasoned New York City veteran detectives who dealt with the 1980s crack epidemic. Here's the story that they confess to. So Angel is going to come over to the apartment because he wanted to collect the money that was owed to him. Michael told Angel he did not have the money, and an argument began. At this point, Michael and Freeze had been up on a three-day bender, high on heroin and Special K, and had not slept. The day that Angel goes to the apartment is um, March, March 17th, so it's St. Patrick's Day. So Angel's going to refuse to leave without his money. This is when Freeze told him basically that he was not accepted, and the only reason people tolerated him was because of the drugs. Michael recalls that Angel asked him if this was true, visibly upset, and Michael confirmed what Freeze had said, and Angel began choking him. This is when Freeze is going to grab a hammer and struck Angel on the head twice. He immediately fell to the ground. Michael and Freeze then claim that they didn't think Angel was dead because they thought they saw his stomach moving, and that they took all of his drugs he had in his backpack, and they passed out. So, Michael may not have died immediately, but they took the drugs and passed out. If we can believe that his stomach was moving and it wasn't a hallucination from the drugs. Right, and they probably, by the time they woke up, he probably died. Right, eight or nine hours later, they woke up and he was still not awake. They claimed to have put a spoon to his mouth to see if he was breathing but he was not. They then submerged him in water in the bathtub to see if this would wake him up, and it didn't. Angel was dead, and in this drug-fueled stupor, Michael began to pour Drano down Angel's throat. When Freeze asked him what he was doing, he said that he was embalming the body. So this just shows how, like, they were just on a... They were on a crazy trip. They were on a binger. Yeah, Yeah, this is crazy. Wow. They weren't in reality. No, no way. The two kept Angel in the bathtub for a week. It was during this time that the two went on a spending spree with Angel's money, buying new clothes and furniture for the apartment. They bragged about wearing Angel's clothes and told guests to ignore the smell. It's only a plumbing issue. Wow. But no one was allowed in their bathroom. Alec and Freeze finally decided that they needed to get Angel out of the apartment, and they retrieve a large cardboard box. However, Angel won't fit in the box. At this point, Freeze goes to Macy's to buy a large knife to cut off to cut up Angel's body. Are you serious? To Macy's. Like isn't that oh it's just Oh my god. The whole thing is ridiculous. We went to Macy's to what? Like a cutlery set? Yes. Oh my god. Michael explains that at this point Angel's body had begun decomposition at the bottom due to the blood setting. Right. 
And like in all the slasher films he loved, they cut up Angel's body into pieces. Ugh. Yeah, and now they said that Michael was the one who did the cutting, that Freeze didn't. And Michael explains in one of his interviews that as he was cutting up the body, Freeze was spraying cologne because it smelled so bad. And it, it just shows, it shows the disconnection that Michael has to this murder when he says in the interview, and Freeze was spraying Calvin Klein eternity. Isn't that ironic? He says that in an interview. <laughs> it's unreal. Like, the and, whole thing is just crazy to me. Right. They carry the box downstairs and they get a cab and drive it. The cab drives them to the Hudson River. The cab driver helps them take the box out of the trunk. And when he asked the two what was in the box, they said it was old plates they didn't want anymore. And they all threw the box into the river. However, they made one mistake. They didn't poke holes in the box, so it was floating in the river. Freeze wanted to go in after the box, but Michael said no, it would raise suspicion, as the cab driver was still there. They then asked the cab driver to take them back to their apartment, which is so dumb, which just shows, like... I mean... Go somewhere else. Like, oh yes, I picked up guys, I think I threw a body into a river, oh, and I know exactly where they live. I would have just, like, oh, leave me at this corner, and I would have just walked back home. I mean, you know, how dumb can you be? I know. See... Okay, this, the Drano thing, the throwing the body into the river the way they did, proves to me that they were in a drug stupor. Oh, yeah. I completely agree with that. I agree with the fact that maybe this murder wouldn't have been committed if they weren't doing drugs. I'm not saying it's an excuse, but I think drugs played a big part in this murder, and the way that they went about everything well it's their mental well-being i mean they're not they're not good (laughs) right they're not thinking clearly at all however i feel like their actions and their words prove that they aren't remorseful i think that there needs there there always needs to be even a small of a small amount of you know especially for michael a small amount of like the what if like I need to, I want to experience this. I feel like he wanted to, like, to kill, kill somebody. somebody and to dismember them. Because just he like in his fantasy, like, no, not at all. So maybe the drugs just put him over the top and gave him the courage, the to, courage to do what, he, to wanted do what to do. he wanted to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, because everyone well, has to have a little bit of crazy in him and uh, in them, and he definitely did. Right. And he wasn't afraid to try things and experiment. I just think that his actions aren't remorseful, even in discussing the crime that he committed. And his actions afterwards. Him and Freeze are going to say that they felt horrible for what had happened. But that can't be true. If they're spending all of his money, wearing his clothes, bragging about murdering him. Like there's clips of Michael Alex saying, I, I murdered Angel. Because he he's playing into this. He was definitely proud of it. Right. It's it's all, I believe, I can't all be the drugs. I agree with you. Yeah. Like I said, there has to be a little crazy in him for him to do it. Right. Now, the box that they threw into the Hudson would have went out to sea. Out to the Atlantic Ocean, never to be seen again. However... 
there was a massive storm that hit the East Coast that week. And that kept the box in the Hudson, which is why it landed up on Staten Island. So it's all by chance that that box didn't go out into the Atlantic. Isn't that something? And he would have gotten away with it. Isn't that something? Because nobody would have cared. And that would have pushed the envelope even further. Holy shit. Right. What this would guy have can happened? Get well, or, or the other side, holy shit, this guy can even get away with murder. Let's praise him even more. Right, right. Like, and, and his ego is going to keep blowing up like a big balloon. And that's the what if. What yeah. if he did get away with that? He would have done it again. Yeah. But do you think he would have done it again? I think he would have lived off of the idea that he killed that one person. Okay. And maybe tried to recreate the fantasy of him doing it. I don't know if he would have had the balls to do the second murder. Do you think that it was out of rage? Like, we, we talk about that it's fueled by drugs and that maybe he was a little crazy too. No. But it could have been a rage thing because he had problems with Angel. No, because Michael didn't kill him. Freeze did. Angel was choking no, uh, Michael yeah. and Freeze hit him. I think Michael's obsession with like horror flicks and his obsession with death and like a weird state of mind he was in pushed him to deal with the body afterwards. Right. Because in reality, Michael really didn't kill him. No, I understand that. But I'm saying, do you think that he would, if given the chance in the future, I think could he, he would be have, another, like, could he be dangerous to society? I think he would be dangerous to society in influencing people. I think other people may have murdered kind of like Manson. for him. Yeah, like he would be a cult leader of right, that. Right, like Manson. I could totally see that, because that's what he was. I think he would do that other than murder again. I think he would put other people's lives in danger, not his own. Okay, I can, I can understand that. So, Michael Alec and Robert Freeze Riggs are going to plead guilty to first-degree manslaughter, which carries a sentence of 10 to 20 years. Riggs was released after 15 years in 2012, and Michael was released after 17 years in 2014. Now, this is because he had to serve extra time for drug use in prison. During their time in prison, this crime did gain notoriety. James St. James is famous on the New York City, you know, club scene, is going to write a book which inspired the movie Party Monster, in which Allie is played by Macaulay Culkin, and James St. James is played by Seth Green. Alec seemed to have gained a cult following from the release of this movie. And after uh, after he's released, there's actually a documentary which can be seen on Netflix called uh, Glory Days. I think it was Glory which Days. Which we watched. Yeah. Um, and it just shows Michael being released and the club kids, you know, welcoming him back, especially James St. James. Then they watch the movie Party Monster together. And it's kind of bizarre watching... uh, Him watch the movie. (laughs) Watching him watch the movie and watching him be glorified in the way he was. And, like, he's so excited to be back in New York City and this was that. And it's it's like you almost see this... uh, He looks like an excited child. Back in his stomping ground. That persona started coming out. Like, it started bleeding out. Yes. And you, you could see it. Even with 17 years in prison, uh, away from the world, he doesn't even know what internet is. He has no idea what any of that kind of shit is. And he's, you could see his old personality coming back out for a brief second. And that's why I say, like, he's crazy. Yeah. 
He's, he's narcissistic. Absolutely. Yeah. He needs to be the center of attention once again. And when when Michael is asked about the crime, he still refuses to take any accountability. And he really blames all of his actions on the drugs he was taking. And in an interview with Rolling Stone, Michael talks about his time in prison. And he claims that he was in solitary for heroin use for a good amount of years. But he eventually kicked the habit about three years into prison. Uh, Michael's going to claim during his time in prison, he was attacked, he was raped, he didn't have a good experience. But overall, from what other interviews he gives and from what facts we were able to get from his time in prison, didn't seem like Michael had a bad time in prison. Most of the time he was away, him and Freeze were together. Which is weird in itself. That you would put two murderers together. Together in the same prison system. Yeah. Um, He also had a relationship in prison. And when asked about it, he said, this is a quote from him. Well, I was dating someone in prison. The first week that I was arrested, 17 years ago, I met somebody. It was also his first time being arrested, and he was arrested with me. We went through the whole reception process together. They give you an IQ test when you come to prison, but they won't tell you what the score is. Some people say it's to place you for a job in prison, but others say answer all the questions wrong because if they think you're too smart, they'll think that you're an escape risk and they'll put you in a higher classification. Luckily, we ended up in the same facility four times. So him and his boyfriend. It was a very laid-back existence. We got to have coffee and play backgammon, almost like a married couple. It's hard to forge real friendships in prison. You could be awakened on any day at 6 in the morning, and they come and say, pack your things, you're moving to a new facility. And there's nothing you could do to stop it. So people don't put a lot of effort into forging any relationships. On top of that, there's a lot of criminals in prison. Not exactly the people you want to get close to or trust with your emotions. I can tell you his first name is Mike. He's married and has two kids. He's in for burglary and he's got between two and three, two months and three years left. Even if he has to do the whole three years, we'll be fine. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, that just goes along with his... Him saying that he has a long string of older men taking care of him, right? Yeah. He also claims that 99% of his friends are still in contact with him. And while in prison and today, he still gets around 500 emails a day. Wow. Yeah, he's still got his... his, Still has his following. It made it bigger. Yeah. As for Michael Alleg, one would think that he's remorseful. But he's not. Because he's currently employed by the Rhombus Room in New York a large bar. Once he got off parole in early 2017, January to be exact, he's going to throw an outlandish party every Monday night along with DJ Kaoki, remember from the beginning, and all of his friends that are still well, they're still they still dress and act like club kids, but they're in their 50s. Right, but they still so, they can't give it up. <laughs> they can't give it up. They don't look as good in their spandex though. But they still all hang around with him. And from this newfound fame he received on the documentary Glory Days and the 2003 movie Party Monster, um, he's famous. Isn't that insane? He's famous. And he makes these paintings and he sells them for $500 each. And he seems to be slowly but surely reviving this club kid scene. And I wouldn't he, doubt it. He's the center of it. He is. I wouldn't doubt it. Now, it's at one of these parties that he was approached by a married couple 
who are huge fans of his, he says. They loved the movie Party Monster. So, in an interview with the Daily Mail, Michael explains this interaction and his next venture. One night at Outrage, this is another club, this man approaches me. It turns out that he's a multi-billionaire, Alec tells DailyMail.com. I don't know how this happens in my life, but I've had a series of rich white men, heterosexual men, kind of father figures come in and just kind of take care of me for some reason. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, no, for some reason. It must be something in my DNA, in my personality, that I'm seeking these people out because I never really had a father. So that must be what it is because it's too much of a coincidence. Um, Because it's like the fifth one in my life, he says. But he came up to me and Party Monsters' his favorite movie and his wife's too. This businessman, Alex says, owns property in Patterson, which is in New Jersey, and is a bad area. Patterson used to be a really great town, but has turned into um, a really dangerous area which is to live perfect, in in New Jersey. Which is perfect. Because for... it's exactly like 1980s New York Absolutely. City. Absolutely. Everything is run down. Everything yep. is cheap. You can buy a whole lot of properties if you want to for... You know, I'm not going to say pennies on the dollar, but right. that's just to prove, like, to, you know, get, you know. And there's unlimited abandoned warehouses in Patterson. Absolutely. Perfect for these people because, to do this Because, um, I mean, Patterson used to be, like, an, in de- an industrial right. center of America, especially when you talk about, like, the factories, the early 1900s, um, textile factories that now are they're just empty. They're or empty. empty. Now, this businessman had converted many of these warehouses into lofts and old factories into lofts. He offered me a beautiful four-bedroom, 20-foot ceiling loft, which is where I'm living now for free. Are you freaking kidding me? I want a four-bedroom loft. Where's this businessman? We need to meet him. You have to be party monster. Well, I'm not a party monster. I'm a Netflix monster. If I would move here and kind of promote the town like an artist enclave and invite my artist friends to come here and maybe live here, Alec tells DailyMail.com, and create like a community of creative people that will kind of be a counter effect to the ghetto type danger element to Patterson. I can't wait for Michael Alec to be caught on the streets of Patterson at night. Okay. It's no good, let me tell you. So that's the kind of that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm kind of a spokesman for Patterson. Oh my god. <laughs> I just wish that we could give you like snapshots of Patterson. Look look it up. It's, it's like nothing it's to feature- look at. It's featured on a lot of cops episodes. Oh um, yeah. Um, imagine Michael Alec there. He is painting in the loft as he speaks, working on a picture of another former club kid, James St. James. Artwork is something he got into in prison, encouraged by Robert Freeze Riggs. The two were initially placed in the same correctional facility. Art, he says, saved my life. Okay. But in reality, that statement means so much more because Art did save his life because he was being artistic and creating this club kid scene. And that's what saved him. That's what kept people quiet for a long time. That's what made him famous. And that's what's going to allow him to create this persona, which is going to allow him to survive prison and actually turn prison around so it's something that benefits him. 
He is yeah. an artist making his own life. See, I, I like I like your little analogy there. Yeah, but I'm going to tell you this. Nice. I think he's just a swindler. I think he's a oh, swindler, yeah. a manipulator, and... And I don't think he feels bad at all no, for what he did to Angel. No, Listen, he used people to get to where he got at his height, okay? Mm-hmm. He, you know, Was he used dick. his influence to really just kind of shape the type of world that he wanted. Right, and I, he could change it. At the, whatever mood he felt, he could change his world too. So, you know, coming from South Bend... Coming mm-hmm. into New York because he felt like he didn't belong where he was or, you know, the, the acceptance wasn't there. Right. He created a universe within a universe, basically. Right. Okay. And if you think about it, he excluded a lot of people. Right. And I think that Everything that, that he went to New York City for, he just created again, uh, you know. But I think he did that on purpose. I think that was his rage. I think the world that he experienced in South Bend, Indiana, he then wanted to create in New York City but have himself be on top. So whereas it was those boys who played sports that made him feel insignificant and that he didn't belong and probably beat him up, that's what he's going to do in New York City. But he's going to be the one on top. Because you saw a little snip of the danger of Michael Alec in on the Geraldo Rivera show when Geraldo asked him a question. What do you think the people in South Bend, Indiana would think of the way you're living your life now? And his face went dark. And he just said, they'd be jealous. Look at me now. I'm making money and I'm living the life. And I think that was his intention the whole time. Was never to be the person who was accepting and making a person like Angel, who was just like him when he arrived in New York City, to feel wanted. No, he wanted to be the one on top. He wanted to be the one excluding. He wanted to be the one that everyone followed. And that's the way he is now after prison. There's no remorse. I get it. No, there's not. And like I said, I just think that, you know, you're going to have two sides of this. You're going to have the people that think that, you know, he's a revolutionary. and, And that it was just drugs. And it was just drugs. And then, you know what? I'm sure there's people that agree with me. This is a guy that... Like I said, he swindled people. He did he's a, a lot narcissist. of. He's a narcissist. He did a lot of fucked up shit to get to the top, and he was always pushing the envelope to 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 maintain his his status. His status. Yeah. Um, I really don't really think much of him, but that's just my opinion. I know. Well, guys, please let us know what you think. You could tell us on Instagram, on Twitter. Send us an email at truecrimecouple at gmail. But we really wanted to give this episode to to thank you guys for donating money to us. And we're really going to be able to purchase a mixer, another microphone, get some more soundproofing for our bedroom. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> we need some of that. But thank you so much for supporting us. And um, we will have another episode up for you next month in December. All right? Thank you so much. Bye, guys.